You are listening to Prickly and Blooming, brought to you by LaJoy Society. And now, your hostess, Jessie Browning. All right, all right, all right.
Hi, Karen. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, so we're just going to do this. So we started talking, everyone, before we started recording. And Karen, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? I, I'd love to say, tell me a little bit about you before we hear a lot a bit about you. And of that, you know, Karen has something really great for us to to go over before we get started today. Sure. So my name is Karen Traeger, and I'm really, really happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I, I want to start, before I even say anything about myself, to pause for a moment and recognize that today, the day that we're talking, is called Yom HaShoah, which means the day of the Holocaust. But it's really, in English, would be called the Holocaust Memorial Day that is commemorated in, in Israel and really all around, all around the world. And, you know, the story that... The story that I talk a lot about are, is the story of my in-laws, Sam and Esther Goldberg, who survived in Hebrew, it's called Shoah, the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. So it's a very poignant and beautiful thing that we're able to have this conversation on this particular day. It's meaningful for me, and I hope it will be meaningful for your listeners. With that said, I will step back and introduce myself. I am a 60-year-old woman who lives in Seattle, born and bred here. I'm actually a fifth-generation Seattleite, which is quite unusual. Oh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I know. It's awesome. And yeah. um, I mean, that happens here in Texas a lot, but I don't hear that about people yeah, in Seattle. Yeah, I know, because the city wasn't founded till 1852. So, yeah, that's what I was doing, yeah. quick math. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Go ahead. So, um, so anyway, I grew up here. I went east for college, and I went to Barnard College, and then I went to I worked a bit in D.C., and then I went back to New York for law school, and I went to NYU Law School. Had a fantastic experience there. And then uh, in the meantime, I, was, I got married when I was in D.C. My husband and I both moved to New York together. We both had three-year programs. He's a doctor and worked out great. So at the end of my three years, I had my first child, and I was like, yeah, we, we're, getting out of, we're out of New York. That's it. So yep. we yep. ended up moving to Seattle. And we have lived here ever since, and we have four children, and now we have, in the last year and a half, very exciting, which is that we have three grandchildren. Awesome. Yes. In the last year and a half? I know, because it was a year, we have a year and a half year old who's actually sleeping, he's napping in the other room. I'm, I'm in charge today. And we have twin six-month-olds. Oh, COVID babies. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. Yep. So, Life kept going. Yeah. Yep. So I'm a grandmother of three and I had a wonderful career in, in the law. And, and then I imagine we'll, we'll talk shortly about how I made a big shift in my life and left my practice and decided to write this book that I called My Soul is Filled with Joy, a Holocaust story about my in-laws experience. But, you know, we'll talk more about it. But really what happened is that their story became my story. And mm -hmm. like the second half of the book that I ended up writing was all about my experience and the ways that it changed me profoundly. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's in short, that's my story. Right. Oh, so let's segue. Perfect. <laughs> we love to start at the beginning of the show is, you know, this moment we call it the, this can't be my life or just not this, or here's another one. There are all these euphemisms for like the same thing of this wasn't the plan. You know, where things things took a left turn or a right turn or a U-turn or I don't know, like a trip around the world turn. So where, what is that moment for you? When did things change for you? And then we'll go back and figure out how you got there. So I, I joined the Goldberg family as marrying into it. And I will say that many people, I'm sure, can relate to this idea if you've been married ever, that when you get married, you marry the family. 
right? Yep. You, mm-hmm. you're not just marrying a single person. You are marrying a whole story. And when I, I didn't realize what I was marrying into when I married this lovely gentleman who has been my husband for 36 years, but his, his family is a Holocaust family. And I mean, of course I knew about the Holocaust. Of course I grew up here in a Jewish community and, and understood this horrible thing that had happened. But really it wasn't until I, I joined the Goldberg family that I realized on a very personal level their story and heard the mm-hmm. details of their story. And you know, there are different kind of Holocaust survivors. Some like to talk about it a lot and some don't like to talk about it at all. My mother-in-law, no. My father-in-law was ha- you know, willing to talk about it. So it was very interesting. But still, you get the story anyway. I always said this story and you'll understand why in a few minutes, this story okay. needs to be a book. It needs to be a movie. It needs to be in the world. But I was a lawyer, busy lawyer, raising four children. There was like, and I'm not a writer, like forget it, you know. Yeah. I figured somebody, you know, one of the grandchildren will do it. Anyway, time went on, and I just kept feeling it every time I would talk to them or think about their story or, you know, a long time. I thought about how this needs to be a book. I realized finally, that none of the grandchildren were really going to do this. Like, they were all, like, becoming adults and creating Mm -hmm. their own careers and figuring Mm -hmm. out their paths in life. And it's just, Mm -hmm. no, not going to happen. And I'm like, you know, if if they're not going to do it. The children aren't going to do it. There's three children. My husband has two siblings. Mm -hmm. They can't do it. They're too traumatized themselves. I'll say they're too close to it. Mm -hmm. They're definitely Mm -hmm. second-generation trauma. I guess it's going to be me. And then Mm -hmm. I just sort of thought about that a bit. But then what really happened, or the moment that Mm -hmm. really began to change my way of thinking and forced me, in a sense, to leave my practice and start this, was the death of my own father. Because he died in 2013. And we were very close. And it was just shook me up in a very significant way, as deaths of parents Mm -hmm. tend to do. And Mm -hmm. I really had to go inside of myself and ask myself what is my purpose here on earth? What am I doing here? My practice of law was very fulfilling. I was doing elder law. I was helping families. I was helping seniors. I was doing good work. And in fact, I used, mm-hmm. to, I used to joke and call it, it's legal social work, <laughs> you know, which it was. Yep, totally. Yeah. Yep. So it was very meaningful and I didn't feel like I wasn't doing important things, but I thought when I'm dead, what mm-hmm. am I leaving behind? I mean, of course I'm leaving my children, but what am I leaving behind? What piece of me, what piece of my soul am I leaving behind? And that was mm-hmm. really shook me up. And that's the moment where I was like, okay, this is my time. My youngest daughter was a junior in high school and I saw the empty nest thing happening. And um, mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. like, this is it. And I kind of sat with the idea for a while. I didn't tell anyone because like, I just had to get used to it myself. I'm one of those too. I don't tell people. When it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I understand that. Finally, mm-hmm. it was one beautiful fall day in October And Mm -hmm. I was sitting, my husband and I were sitting outside actually and having coffee. And I was like, I'm going to tell you something that I've decided and I'm going to hear your reaction. So I told him that I wanted to leave my Mm -hmm. practice and write a book about his parents' experience. And he just was quiet for a minute. And then he looked at me and he said, okay. And I was like, okay. And just something about saying the words of what I want to do brings it out into the world that makes it real. And so I knew, though, that I had to ask his sisters. He has two sisters, as I mentioned, for their mm-hmm. okay, because that would just be inappropriate if, if I didn't. So I did ask their permission, and I got their permission. 
obviously I had a transition time at my work. You know, I didn't just be like, bye guys, I'm going. Two weeks. Yeah, no, no. It was like a it was like a five, six yeah, months. Yeah, no, months. Yes, months. Yep. But then there I was and I set up a little office in my house and in the basement, actually I little corner and I knew that I didn't know how to write a book that people would want to read. So I started out by taking a course at the University of Washington, Mm -hmm. like an extension course, one night a week kind of thing for a year. And it was in creative nonfiction, which was perfect for what I needed because I wanted very much Mm -hmm. to tell their story in a historical context. So that's what I wanted to do. And then that was the moment that it was really the death of my father. I mean, I'd wanted it to happen. I Mm -hmm. wanted it to magically appear, Mm -hmm. this book somehow. But then it was the death of my father that really... pushed me to do it pushed right so I think we kind of went over it a little bit so I'm so curious like because this is a huge I'm an entrepreneur so that's why I was like oh yeah you just give him two weeks right walked away ha ha no I I want can you what's what I'm looking for build like build us your life up until that point like what it looked like how big was this practice how what got you to there like where were you in that moment so you have to go back because I came to Seattle Um, When my first daughter was born, like I said, when I finished law school, it was 1988. And I started, you know, typical law school graduate. I worked for a big law firm downtown Seattle. And um, I was doing a business practice and it was fine. They were lovely people. Everything was fine. And then I had uh, a second child. That went fine. Then I went back to work after that. And then when I was pregnant with my third child, like eight months pregnant with my third child, my oldest daughter, who was just almost four was diagnosed with leukemia yeah she's fine she's the one who has the twins so I always say that right away whenever I tell people about that that really that was a big shakeup and her treatment was two and a half years and it really required a full-time parent like it was just a nanny just wasn't gonna it just wasn't gonna do Mm -mm. and so my husband and I discussed it of course and we decided that I would leave my job I would take a longer maternity leave let's just say and my firm was really nice about it my maternity leave because I gave birth a month later, so that whole thing turned into 10 years, honestly. Yeah, wow. turned into staying <laughs> home and doing kids and volunteer work for 10 years. And then when I was ready to, I had, had another fourth child six years later. Anyway, when she was ready like, to go to kindergarten, I was like, okay, I'm ready. And I thought about how am I going to reenter the workforce in a meaningful way. And mm-hmm. I really did a lot of thinking and a lot of reading and talking. And I decided to join this practice. Well, I was invited, actually, to join this very small practice, a boutique law firm uh, doing elder law. It was six attorneys, very lovely, very lovely people, very family-friendly, which is what I needed. And I worked there for 15 years. That just went great. We had, an o- we had two offices, and I went to work every morning, got my kids off to school, went to work had an interesting work life and the days I could leave early if I needed to, to go to basketball games or whatever. So my life was super busy with four kids but and the work and a bunch of volunteer stuff, of course, that I was throwing in on the side. And it was just a very, very busy, busy life. But it was very rewarding. Everything was lovely. And then, you know, this happened. I was just, I was just minding my own business, taking care of my family, doing my work, mm-hmm. doing my volunteer things. Yep. And then... My dad died, and then it yeah. went from there. It went from there. Isn't that interesting that it really does put a whole... Oh, remind me, though. We, your in-laws have yes. passed. Yeah, sometimes. Okay, ago. did you ever know oh, yes. that? Oh, I knew. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, my mother-in-law died in 1998, and my father-in-law, 
six years later. Okay. I know when my mother-in-law died because I was pregnant with my fourth child. I do everything by that, too. <laughs> I do everything by... No, I was pregnant with Farah, so it was 2011. I have four children as well. Okay. It stretches on for a very long time. Or you can remember who was a baby. You know, oh, well, this one was... Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that we're always doing it. Well, who were you pregnant with or whatever? Who was just born? Yes, and a whole decade of time can be allotted by that. So tell me about when we're at that moment when you were like, okay, this is what I'm doing. And your husband says, well, okay, how, how do you start? I, I know there's like this long period to get out of your practice. How does that start? How do you start? Like, do you go in and say like, okay, I'm going to write a book. I need to leave. Oh my gosh. No. I don't really remember the conversation, but I did tell them that I was going to write this book and I was, that's mm -hmm. what I was going to go do. And they were, mm -hmm. they were very nice about it. The, tr the truth is both of the, there were two partners and the rest of us were associates. One partner was planning on retiring like in a year and the other one was going to retire like in five years. So like we could see the horizon of they're going to retire. So either the rest of us are going to become partners and take over the firm or we're going to go do something else. So mm -hmm. I kind of saw that in the horizon. So that, did, that didn't make me feel quite so bad for leaving. There was enough staff to cover what, you know, my cases and, you know, you wind them down. But I did, yeah, I did tell them that I was leaving to write this book. And they were, they were actually really mm -hmm. nice about it. What can I say? They were really mm -hmm. nice people. Yeah. Did you approach friends, family? Like, like how, did, how did this roll out? What started to take shape and change when you decided to make uh, this change? Well, I'm... I think the biggest difference was not going mm -hmm. to the office every day and just waking up. I am an, a morning exerciser, so exercising and mm -hmm. then going down to my basement and being like, okay, what am I going to accomplish today? I always tell people this, like now I'm the expert, right? You write a book and now you're, you're an expert. People are like, yeah. how did you start? What did you do? And I said, you just start with what you know. Start with what you have. And that's exactly how I started. Mm -hmm. I started with Sam had done a full-on interview with the Shoah Foundation, which is a foundation that went around interviewing Holocaust survivors all over the country, all over the world, really, mm -hmm. but mostly in the United States. It was a mm -hmm. Steven Spielberg uh, project. And Esther had done one interview with her daughter. She, like I said, she didn't like to talk about it, but mm -hmm. her daughter got her to sit down one mm -hmm. time and talk about it. So I just started there. What did they say about their experience and what can I learn from that? And what holes do I need to begin to fill in? So that's really how I approached the beginning of the project besides doing this writing course. But so I started mm -hmm. that way and I started, okay, I'm going to first, mm -hmm. all the research I ever learned to do in my life, starting in actually, I always tell middle school students, I say, pay attention when they give you that research project or high school or, or college. I learned different research skills, including law school, that really came in exceedingly handy. So I really realized I had a lot of skills mm -hmm. to do the work. And I'm also very dogged. If I found, like, let's say I was reading a history mm -hmm. book about, you know, Holocaust history, which I started, I did a lot of reading and note-taking. Mm -hmm. And I'd find, in a footnote, I'd find, you know, a book that talked about this, uh, this topic and that looked like it would lead me to an interesting mm -hmm. piece of information. So I just, like... I found that book. Mm -hmm. Each book, each in, in the footnotes really are key. It just, it sends you mm -hmm. on a path. It's like, here you go. Here's, here it is. Mm -hmm. So I, and then like interviews that I did and someone would, I tried to interview as many people as I could who knew them and also who went through similar mm -hmm. things in similar places in Europe, in Poland, primarily in Poland. 
And so I was mm-hmm. able to build. And then that person would say, well, you should really talk to this person. And I'm like, okay, give me their contact information. I just went down a path. And when you go down a path, the doors open. Just doors open. Mm-hmm. Some mm-hmm. of them are rabbit holes that you have to jump down and just stay down there for a while and just spin around. And some of them are just windows that bring in the fresh air. It was just really a dark story and a dark time in history, but it was really fun. It was Mm -hmm. really fun to do it. How much of their story did you know before you started investigating it? Because it sounds like you were investigating their story. There were a lot of things. And I'll tell you that, I mean, like, for example, simple things like, you know, what was what was their life like before the war? They talked about it a little bit, before, mm-hmm. but not a lot. And so I needed to mm-hmm. create a picture in my mind because I thought it was very important for the reader of this book and for me, honestly, to understand mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at least enough about what the place that they grew up in. Because the war started, they were 19, 20 years mm-hmm. old. They were, they were adults. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And so like, what was the life like before? And what was the relationship in their family? Because their parents, both of them, their parents and all their siblings were murdered. What was the mm-hmm. dynamic there? I mean, the loss is awful. I wanted to be able to feel it more, to understand it better. Were they together oh, at no. the time? Oh, no. The meeting, st- do you want to jump right into the meeting story? We can do <laughs> that. If you want. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it gets to the crux of the story. So I'm just, I'm just going to go there because mm-hmm. my father-in-law, a lot of stuff happened in the first couple years of the war. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, it's too much to talk about. My father-in-law got captured mm-hmm. by the Nazis in June of 1942 mm-hmm. and taken to a place called Treblinka. 135 mm-hmm. men were taken by truck. He was in this, in a town nearby. Treblinka turned into a death camp where 870,000 mm-hmm. people, primarily Jews, some, some Roma also, uh, were murdered in gas chambers. But he was taken there when it was just an open field. And he was forced with these other men to become slaves, basically, and build the camp and stay. And they had about 800 Mm -hmm. Jews who they used as a workforce in the camp to keep the camp running. So he was in Treblinka for 13 months. He was one of the two people. I found one other person who was there that long. Because most people... The whole time? Yeah. Most people were... They came either in the middle if they were brought in for work or they were killed. You know, it's, mm-hmm. this is a very hard thing to, to say and a hard thing to hear. So, warning. Most people who came to mm-hmm. Treblinka by train were dead in 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. That's how long it took to kill people at Treblinka. So, it's really awful. So, the fact that he stayed alive for 13 months yeah. is pretty remarkable. But then, he was part of a group of 50 men who got together and planned and executed an uprising. And they blew up the camp. They wired the the gas tank that was there that the Germans used for their trucks and stuff. And they blew it up. And they blew a hole with grenades. They snuck into the armory and got some grenades and some guns and some, uh, you know, whatever they could. And they blew a hole in the fence, which was, of course, one of those classic barbed wire fence that you see in the movies, you know. And the 800 men and women that were there that weren't part of the 50 who planned it realized it's, it's an uprising, and everybody started running out through the hole. Unfortunately, the guards, the Ukrainian guards that were in the watchtowers were still there because part of the plan was mm-hmm. to neutralize them in the beginning. 
the plan didn't go perfectly mm -hmm. well. So they were still there and they were shooting down mm -hmm. at the people as they were running out. So a lot of people didn't even make it through mm -hmm. the gate, through the hole. But my father-in-law made it through the hole and he ran and he ran like everybody. He just wanted to get to the woods to find a place to hide. That was the goal, hide in the mm -hmm. forest. So he ran about 10 miles. And when he got there, that is where he met my mother-in-law, Esther, who'd been hiding in those woods already for a year. She'd been hiding oh, wow. there with the help of two Christian families um, who let her hide sometimes in this barn, sometimes in that barn. They helped her with food, you know, just the only way you can possibly survive in hiding. Mm -hmm. They saw each other. They, they realized right away that they were both Jewish. They, they spoke Yiddish, which was the language right. of Eastern European Ish. Polish Jews. So they spoke mm -hmm. they to each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he's like, I just escaped from Treblinka which everybody knew about Treblinka by then. Mm -hmm. This is August of 1943. And she's like, okay. what? Yes, we have to hide because they're chasing after us. She said, come with me. I'll take you to my angel. That's what they called the people who helped them, angels. And this was not just Esther. Like All the people who were helped in hiding called their, their saviors an angel. It was really interesting. They knocked on her door and said, you've got to hide us. This man just escaped Treblinka, and they're chasing after him. And the woman, of course, said, are you nuts? What are you? Are, are you crazy? If you hide in my barn and they find you there, we're all dead. Like you guys are dead, but I'm dead. All my kids are dead. She had a pack of kids. And somehow Esther convinced mm -hmm. her to let them hide in the barn. And they hid there for three days and three nights until this big search calmed down. And then they came out and Sam decided he didn't really have anywhere to go. And so he decided to stay and hide with Esther. And they went deeper into the forest and dug a pit. And they dug that pit and they lived in that pit. They put wood on the top with a rope and a pulley system and they camouflaged the top and they hid in that pit. Esther was at that time hiding before with a teenage boy named Chaim. Mm -hmm. And so the three of them hid in that pit for a year. Wow. Yeah, until they were liberated by the Soviet army. And in the very, very, very cold months in the winter, one of the dads of these, these two families that, that were helping them, named the Stish, that was the last name, Stish, allowed them to hide in his barn. And he built like a fake, a, a wooden box. Just imagine a wooden box with, with beams and then covered with hay. And it was, so if someone, right, so if someone came in the barn, they wouldn't know there were three Jews hiding there because you weren't just hiding from the Nazis, mm -hmm. which you were but you were hiding from the Polish neighbors because if they turned in a Jew to the Germans, dead or alive, it didn't matter, they got a reward. A, they got a kilo of sugar as a reward, which was very, very uh, an expensive item during war times. So that is how they met. Wow. Wow. Yeah, my humble little short in-laws, you know? They were, yeah. they were not taller yeah. than five feet. Yeah. <laughs> and how old were they when they met? They, well, they were in the war started third 1939 and they were 19 and 20 approximately. Okay. And so they were four years older. So they were they were like 23, 24. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Huh. College age. College. They didn't go to college. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. They went to the college of life. Yeah. Yeah. But so. Wow. So then like one of the other moments in my life that was a big shift in my approach to mm -hmm. how I am in the world was when I went mm -hmm. 
with my whole family, my husband and our four children and one son-in-law, to Poland in 2016. I knew to write mm -hmm. this book, I was going to have to go to Poland. I just, I knew it. I didn't know who was going to come with me, but I knew I was going. So some of these rabbit holes that I talked about before, one of them included yeah. um, getting my, my sister-in-law telling me that she has these letters that she found in my father-in-law's apartment and found these letters that were in Polish. She didn't know who they were from or what they said, but she saved them, thank God. And she's like, maybe they'll help mm -hmm. you. And I'm like, send them over. So she sent them over. I had them translated. And through those letters, we were able to find the three surviving children of those two Christian families, the Stishes. When we went to Poland, we got to meet them. And when it became clear to my family members that this is what was going to go down, one by one, I mean, my youngest daughter, Esther, was graduating high school when all this was, like, surfacing and bubbling up. And so she was graduating, and I said, I'm going to go on this trip. Would you like to go with me as, you know, sort of graduation thing? And she's like, yes. So I said, okay. So at least I knew I had one travel partner. But then as, as the rest of this unfolded, at one by one, first my husband and then every one of our children, they were like, I'm coming. I'm coming. Oh, you're, you're <laughs> not going to go without me. So it turned out that we all went together and we had the most intense, intense time. And one of the things that happened when we were talking for hours and hours with these now in their 80s and one woman was 90 members of this dish family, the ones that were left who remembered Sam and Esther and remembered so much. Oh, so that's where a lot of the story got filled mm -hmm. in for me uh, to be okay. able to write the book. That's, that's how we got to here because you were like, how'd mm -hmm. you fill it in? Yeah. Here's how I f a lot of filling in went here mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they filled in so much. And we were talking and one of them, a man named Genyik, who was 85 when we met him, mm -hmm. he's still alive. The other two, unfortunately, have passed. Have since passed. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, which makes me so grateful that I went when I did. But he said, listen, when we're done talking, if you want, we'll take you out to the forest and show you the pit that your parents lived in. <gasps> what? What? I, I mean. You weren't expecting that at all. Oh. <laughs> yeah. 75 years later? Yeah. We couldn't believe it. So we're like, yes. So we all yeah. go. He, we follow this man who's 85. But in the time of mm -hmm. the war, he was like nine. And it was his job when they were hiding out in the pit to take mm -hmm. a pail of food every day and put it by nearby the pit. And they would come out at night and get the food. And he knew exactly where it got. What he just mm -hmm. he knew exactly where to go. It was just it was like following him as a nine year old boy. And we mm -hmm. follow him and follow him deep into the forest. And then he's like, here it is. And there's like. It's not the pit that used to be i mean it's not the same it's degraded mm -hmm. it's filled with leaves it was you know you can imagine that it was bigger and deeper and mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. there were three people living in that pit um but it was a pit it was there and we were just all just crying and crying just mm -hmm. tears everybody tears lots mm -hmm. of tears and it was that moment when i stared into that pit something changed inside of me and i mm -hmm. realized that i have for too long taken my life and the things I have in my life for granted. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not a bad, I wasn't a bad person. I'm not a bad person. Mm -hmm. I'm a nice person. 
<laughs> but I realized the depth of which I grew up in a nice home with nice family and went to a nice mm-hmm. school. Like I, I really didn't like the contrast between my life yeah. and what happened to these my in-laws who I loved and knew and cherished my relationship with them. It was shocking. It just like shook me up. And I mm-hmm. said to myself, I'm going to live my life with more gratitude. I'm going mm-hmm. to live my life appreciating what I have and who I have in my life. And I really have tried since that moment, you know, you know, nothing's perfect. It's, you know, you can't be that way every minute. Oh, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I really do take more, a lot more time to appreciate those in my life and what I have in my life since I saw that, stared down into that pit. Mm-hmm. How do you practice your gratitude? How, like, how does it come out for you? Yeah, well, it comes out in actually a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But I started... Actually, it was in the very beginning of COVID. It was like last March. Before that, Mm -hmm. I I started writing a gratitude journal. And Mm -hmm. I started writing, doing different practices for myself. Like, for example, something that if you talk to people about gratitude, they say something, a way to help you feel gratitude is to write thank you notes to people who do something nice Mm -hmm. for you. Mm -hmm. And so I started doing that. And it's actually Mm -hmm. super powerful. So between the Mm -hmm. gratitude journal and writing thank you notes, I kind of, and just the trying to make sure that I'm the one can extend kindness to the person extra, like go, Mm -hmm. go the extra mile. And, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody needs some help with something, do it and then follow up. And so I started to do that more and be more Mm -hmm. cognizant of that. But then in last March, and it was crazy because it was right when COVID was, you know, shutting everything down. um, I had planned to launch this 60-second daily podcast that's called Gratitude in a Minute. I'm sure you remember when COVID began and the shutdown happened. We were all in a state of shock. And all of a sudden, everybody starts talking about gratitude. Oh, I'm so yep. grateful. Oh, what do you have to be grateful for? You have to grateful, grateful, gratitude. And I thought maybe this isn't the time for me <laughs> to jump in with my, you know, 60 second podcast about gratitude that takes you back to that pit. You know, I'm going back to the pit. But the, the gentleman that I was working with said, no, this is perfect time to do it. Launch mm-hmm. your podcast. I see it as, as my practice of mm-hmm. gratitude because every once a week I sit down and I think about what I'm grateful for. And I, I do seven at a time. They're 60 seconds. Mm. And I do them. And it allows me to pause in my life and think through. And then oftentimes it will lead me to action because I'll think about mm-hmm. something that maybe somebody did for me or something that happened. And then when I'm done, I, ca- I can write them a thank you note or I can call them on the phone. How strange is that? And, and thank them. But it's called Gratitude in a Minute, and it's on it's an Alexa flash briefing, but you can get it on, on, on any podcast provider, basically. So these are some of the ways that, that I've been mm-hmm. incorporating this attitude, this shift, honestly, in, in my mental state into my life. And if anybody – it's kind of a buzzword, right? The, the gratitude is kind of a buzzword. But as someone who's also produced like a brain shift by doing a gratitude practice, I, I don't – I don't know if you can really get the benefits if you're not doing it right. I'm trying to say that correctly. <laughs> do you do you have a gratitude do you have a gratitude practice? Mm-hmm. Can you share what you do? First, because I'm a busy lady, at first I did an app for a year. So I, I came up against this problem where I was like, I don't feel like I know how to express gratitude. I feel grateful in my heart, but it's not a muscle that I like raised exercising. 
so I it was like 2016 and I was like I'm going to do this for an entire year I'm going to write something at least one thing maybe five maybe ten in an app and you can attach photos and so that's how I started doing it but now I have journals right here and so uh, yeah I just got a new one yesterday it's called what's your story nice. a journal for everyday evolution I do it more written like would be in the morning and then I have picked the app back up sometime last year I at the end of that, f that first year that I did it the 2016 you can put it into like a pdf and see it as like a book and that is where I really got the power of what I'd done like every day just a little bit for a year and but I really feel like there's I've, I've, I've been to and like conferences and uh, webinars or whatever, you know, talking about, I think people are like this generalized, like I'm grateful for my health or I'm grateful for my family. That's what I'm talking about. Not those sort of, mm -hmm. but like deep specific, like I'm really grateful that my great aunt crocheted me this blanket and I still have it and it's on my bed or like things like that, like really rooted, not the general. That's what I'm talking about. It's like, I hate to qualify of like, make sure you do your gratitude practice right. Because <laughs> that feels, but it, I think it's true. Like, I think it's true. Like, the more meaningful you can make it, the more meaning you're going to put into it, the more meaning you're going to get out of it. Yeah, I hear that. Well, that's great. Mm -hmm. Great that you yeah. do that. Yes. There are some days where I can come up with one thing, right? That's all you need. Right? Exactly. It's just come up with that one thing. You know, and there are some days I think one of them, I was like, I'm having a hard time coming up with something right now, but at least I'm here to say that I'm having a hard time. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, okay. I want to get back to, to you. So you are researching this story and you're knowing you're going to write it. And how long does this take, by the way, this because we, we were in like, you're feeling okay. Yeah. yeah. Three years start to finish. Okay. And then what happens when you're done? <laughs> done with the book, you mean? Or yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, so I spent actually the year, I published it in 2018. And okay. I really spent the next year trying to get the story out. I mean, a year and a mm -hmm. half, really, really, until COVID hit, honestly. The book won two awards, which was wonderful. It won an award from an independent publisher association for in the category of history, which made me Very so cool. happy because mm -hmm. I really wanted my one. As I mentioned historical. Earl, er, mm -hmm. earlier, I wanted to put their story in historical context. So that made me yep. really I was like, yes, yes. And then the other one was it's called the Nancy Pearl Award, and it's a local Washington State book award and mm -hmm. a Pacific Northwest a Writers Association. And mm -hmm. yeah, for memoir. So that was those were two really nice awards. And then that helped me get into get a book tour basically mm -hmm. and I went around talking about it and you know talked to s I'm also a speaker for our local Seattle Holocaust Center and they okay. do they send the speakers out to schools so I I told mm -hmm. them I'll go you know wherever you want me to go just send me and mm -hmm. I'll do it so I did a lot of speaking at schools and I did a lot of speaking to groups and there's been some pivoting to zoom since the COVID started, but it's not quite, it's not the same. I've been doing some, but it's not at all the same. And just going into a community, like I went to places like El Paso, Texas. There's a Holocaust Museum there? Yes, there is. Mm -hmm. That's where I spoke. And I went to, you know, by the way, it doesn't matter, New York, Boston, and you yeah. know, a bunch of places. And Idaho, I'd never been to Idaho. And so it was very profound to go mm -hmm. and talk about the story and, and tying it to my story. 
I try to leave people with three takeaways from the book mm-hmm. or from my or from my presentation if they haven't read mm-hmm. the book, which is fine. But one is just about gratitude that mm-hmm. pause, be grateful, mm-hmm. figure out a mm-hmm. way to put that into your life. Secondly was that um, that we all have choices. And like, mm-hmm. for example, the Stish family made a choice to help Sam and Esther, Esther mm-hmm. and then Sam and Esther. Esther made mm-hmm. a choice to help s- Sam. Sam made a cho- like mm-hmm. all all these choices led to, uh, to life and death decisions for them. And we may not be in a life and death decision making process, but our decisions matter. And I think COVID actually has helped us understand that better. Because honestly, Absolutely. when we make decisions about leaving our house and putting on a mask or not, or are we going to go to, you know, w- the choices that we're making actually do mm-hmm. matter so much. And mm-hmm. they did before COVID and now they do really a lot more even. Mm-hmm. And then thirdly, like I wrote this, did this research and wrote this book about my husband's family. Mm-hmm. It's not my blood family. And I, was, right. and I always tell people, we all have a family. And what is the story of your family? And you should find out who's the ho- if you're the holder of that story, mm-hmm. write it down. You don't have to write a book. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be published. That's fine. But write it down because one or two or three generations from now, someone's going to say to their brother or their sister, gosh darn it, why didn't great-grandma Karen write down her story? I would like to know. And someone's going to want to know in the future, so write it down now. Or if you're someone who isn't the holder of the story, spend some time and find out some of that information and do it now while you can. So yeah, yeah. that's, those are sort of three, three things that I would leave my audiences with. And the feedback from what, from the people that I spoke to was very powerful. Like they really took mm-hmm. those, those lessons and internalized them. And that of course made me really happy that I mm-hmm. was able to, to connect with people in that way. And, maybe even make their lives a little better and more, more meaningful. I'm sure. So is that, let me guess, is that what you wrote about in the second part of the book? Cause you say you broke it up into your in-law story and then how it affected you in your life. Is that what the second part of the book is about? Well, the second part book at the, at the end of the day, yes, because that's mm-hmm. where I yeah. end up with it. But what it, what it's, it's like the half of the book. It's the whole story of like, I start out explaining mm-hmm. how I, you know, first joined this family and I was like, what kind of what is this right yeah. and and then and then sort of how i got to know them and and then how i decided to write the book and i talk about mm-hmm. the fact that my my dad died and that that pushed me mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. over that edge and then i just take the reader through my journey of research mm-hmm. and my trip to poland and actually i had two trips to poland and cuz mm-hmm. so many things happened to me that were crazy and mm-hmm. So I just told the reader all the crazy things that that happened to me. It's a ride. It's a ride. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. So oh that's yeah. really what the second half is about. Going on the ro- t- going on going on my roller coaster ride with me. Of the whole project. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So then like now it's been a couple of years you're continuing to promote the book. Are you going to write something else? Are you going to do more historical fiction? Like is it, has this unleashed a part of you that you didn't know was there? Oh, well, yeah, what it unleashed was the last thing that I mentioned before that I tell my audiences, which is that we all have families and like find out mm-hmm. and it unleashed my in I, I was like, you know, practice what you preach. Yep. So I have turned to over the last year, I've been working on researching my own family 
and you know it's it's a little it's a it's a very different story it's an it's Mm -hmm. a seattle story it's a it's an american story although they all come from different places but it's yeah i've been having a a ball because it's not (laughs) like everybody doesn't die you know it's 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 a whole different a whole different thing Uh, right so there's some (laughs) there's some sad things that that have happened but Mm -hmm. um i haven't figured out how exactly to mesh five different families in one book but mm-hmm. I'm I'm just taking one family at a time and and digging deep into it. I've been spending the last honestly three months now, and I'm honestly not doing it 100% full time because I'm I have a mm-hmm. lot of volunteer stuff and COVID just gets in the way of everything. It really does. <laughs> oh my gosh! And so, yeah. uh, but I've been working for three months now on one particular section of my family, and I found out some really really great stuff. So it's been really fun. Good. So you're you're gonna put that all together in a in yeah. A that's the goal. Good, good. All right. Well, I I mean I think we're coming to the end of our time, but I always like to open it up to say like, what else do you want us to know before before we're done today? What else do you want to share with everyone? I would like to share that we live in a complicated world, mm-hmm. and what happened in the Holocaust is like the extreme of what can happen in a society when hatred and bigotry win Mm -hmm. and when people make other people the other and don't see the humanity in in other individuals. Mm -hmm. We have to be the people who who don't allow that narrative to survive, who Mm -hmm. try our best to see each individual person for their humanity, even Mm -hmm. if they look different than us, even if they practice a different religion. Like... Mm -hmm. That's not a different political party. Like the world has become so, so stratified and so, mm-hmm. so angry that mm-hmm. it makes me, when I think about the extreme of the Holocaust, it makes me be like, stop it. Just <laughs> stop. And mm-hmm. I think we all have a part to play in trying to create the world that we want to live in, that we would like mm-hmm. to live in. And the Holocaust is mm-hmm. a constant reminder. And today being Holocaust Memorial Day, it's a good day Mm -hmm. to ask ourselves, how are we living in the world in a way that makes it a better place and Mm -hmm. a place for all humanity to to thrive and to succeed? And that's I think that's a message that I try to I try to live with it and I try to talk about it as much as I can, because hatred and bigotry are don't get us anywhere good. I was going to say that. Don't get us anywhere good. No. It just doesn't. Nowhere. It just doesn't. It doesn't. And I really like what you said about otherizing. And I, I use that term and I, I, with my children. I say, are you, are you trying to otherize this person? You know, like even, even just like the tiniest thing of, I don't know if that person, uh, they always get a home lunch or school lunch, whatever, you know, <laughs> that's weird and different or just, yeah, that's a silly example, but you know, I'm always trying to lead them back to they're a person, they're a person because children can go to that real quick, you know? And so we start with them and uh, that my husband and I own businesses. And I said the same thing, what you just said at our last like uh, staff meeting, I said, we are creating the community and culture here in this business that we want to see in the world. Mm, nice. Yeah. Of with customers and with employees and with staff and my husband and I as the owners, but you know, anyway, um, I really, really, really appreciate our time today. 
And I'm so glad that, that you came into the show and that I'm going to leave here and go talk to my father, who is a avid reader, and he's going to just sweat when I tell him that I talked to you today. <laughs> he will have read your book by the time this comes out, I promise you. He will probably go to the library or, you know, tomorrow. It's um, on Audible if he likes to listen. Okay. He's a reader. He's a, he's he's a, a reader. He's a, okay, he's a page turner. Yeah. Yep. Yep. He's a page turner. But um, um, my entire childhood, he is a history, like he goes through phases. Like he went through his Civil War phase. He went through his World War II phase. He went through his JFK phase. Like he's a very, <laughs> he's a deep, deep dive history person. Um, I don't even know what, what history phase he'd be in right now, honestly. Um, I'd have to check in with him about that. <laughs> Um, he's probably actually on the other side of this door right now. I heard my children came home and he ha picks them up from school for nice. me. So, yeah. So um, I just want to thank you really so much for sharing your time in this story. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having thank me. You. It was really beautiful. Cool. Thanks. And where can people find you or in the book and all that? Let's do that. Yeah. I have mm -hmm. a website, KarenTriger.com. Mm -hmm. My name. Which is T-R-E-I-G-E-R. Yes. T-R-E-I-G-E-R. Mm -hmm. That's a good place to find all kinds of stuff mm -hmm. about me and the book and different mm -hmm. things. It's carried on Amazon, and you can buy it on Amazon. You can mm -hmm. get the Audible. Uh, it's on. It's in Kindle, paperback, and mm -hmm. Audible, the three formats that the book is in. Um, I mentioned my podcast, Gratitude in a Minute, which I encourage everyone to sign up for it and get it at 60 seconds of your day. Start your day off with, a, you know, just some crazy thing that I decide to share with you. Yeah, that's that's the universe. My, my, I have a podcast, mm -hmm. a blog. I have a blog post, which you can also actually mm -hmm. I posted today about Yom HaShoah. Next week, I'm going to post some crazy stuff about a woman who was a countess who I realized I found out through my research about my family that I'm related to her. So that's crazy. Mm -hmm. Anyway, mm -hmm. it's a lot of fun. Uh -huh. So, yeah, I've got a blog. I've got a blog. I've got a podcast and I've got the website. Those, that's really the universe of stuff to find out about Karen Traeger and the book. Very cool. Very cool. And I remind everyone that I'm at LaJoy Society, uh, which is L-A-J-O-I-E. Um, that's my maiden name, by the way, LaJoy. Uh, LaJoy, if you will. Um, and uh, that is it on Instagram. And rate the show review the show that's how and rate her book and review her book that's how we can meet it and not meet that's how we get in front of other new you know listeners and readers is by rating and reviewing um so i will go review your um your book and i will read i have to know the more like i'm so glad you just told me how sam and esther met and now i have to go read the book and fill in the rest of the story <laughs> like i really do there's a lot yeah wonder until then how they ended up you know in seattle and, um, no, they didn't I'll, end up. In, they did not end up in Seattle. Oh, they were were they in New York? They ended up in New York, and then they Got retired it. to Miami. Okay, okay, so they were in Seattle with you. You saw them in New York. Okay, I'm gonna find out the rest of their story. Everyone, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time and your story, Karen. And uh, everyone else, uh, we'll meet here again next week. Everything up to this point has led me here, and there's nowhere I'd rather. to be here all the things that made no sense that felt so wrong and out of place now seem to fit perfectly to tell a story
Chances taken, choices made Cards left on tables and cards played And no one knows How well